Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. How some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed. Some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. And there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp. There you are, a classier bit of verse than our usual willy willy Harry Stee doggerel. That famous speech is from Shakespeare's Richard II, where he mocks the idea that kings are somehow different to the rest of us and points out that they die just the same. And that's the theme of this special edition of Willy Willy Harry Stee, one of our sidebar episodes where we take a different perspective on the monarchs. So we're going to be taking a look at how they died and whether there's anything we can learn from that about the kings and queens and about our own mortality. And I'm delighted to have on as my guest Susie Edge, or more properly, as we'll be looking at the frailties of the human body, Dr. Susie Edge. Susie, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for asking me to come and chat. Well, I got very excited because I follow lots of historians and I suddenly started seeing that they were posting about you and reposting um, tweet. We don't call them tweets anymore, do we? Posts. Oh, I, I don't know what we call them. Whatever they are. <laughs> about your book, Mortal Monarchs, 1000 Years of Royal Deaths. It is a bit like this series. It is a history of the the British monarchy, the English monarchy, I don't know what we officially call it, but you have done it through the lens of looking at how they all 
died and all the various <laughs> diseases and injuries they got along the way. How did you come to that? I mean, how did you come? Because you didn't start as a historian, did you? Well, it's funny. I was listening to the very fir- your very first uh, edition, the, the first episode of this podcast. Right. And you talked about how you think of the, the monarchy, you know, as this stream of, you know, the last thousand years and you start with willy, willy. And and I, I had a giggle because that's exactly how I came to it as well. I had a similar prep school start, <laughs> will be at 20 years later, I might have, in the 80s. And a very, very similar scenario. I sat there thinking, oh, it's exactly the same. You know, we, had, we, we did it in that way. And um, my kids very have a very different um, history teaching now. But I, I think about them like that as well. And I am a doctor, a medical doctor, and I'm absolutely fascinated by how we've treated the human body. And when I say treated, I don't just mean medically. I mean how we've dealt with it and looked after it. And we we have this incredible reverence for the body, and then suddenly we're digging it up and prodding and poking and putting on display and what have you. And um, and, and so I look at everything through that lens of, of the human body in history. And the stories of the kings and queens are just... Every single one of them's got a great story. I came to this because I was practicing as a doctor, but I was a bit disillusioned. And uh, I had this interest in history, which I wasn't really, uh, I'd say I wasn't allowed to pursue. I was persuaded not to right. uh, in my <laughs> teens because um, you know, there's no future in that, is there? There's no future in writing books or studying history or the humanities or anything like that. You have to do science. I don't think there's a future in anything these days, is there? <laughs> Indeed. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I just yes. hold on tight to everything at the moment. But that wasn't the plan. So I had to go and do something else. And I was good at the sciences and I enjoyed all that. So I became a doctor. But yeah, disillusioned. I went and studied history whilst I was working as a doctor, sneaking out when nobody knew to wow. the history department at the university. And while I was there, my kids were growing up and they were interested in, in watching horrible histories. Yes. And I was asking them questions like, who was on the throne in 1415? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, they loved all that stuff. And then I got bored of that because they were too good. So I started saying silly things like, and how did they die? Yeah. And then I thought, oh, there's some good stories here. There's some great stories. I mean, funnily enough, I've talked quite a lot on this podcast about the Chalk Valley History Festival, which was my main route into doing history was starting to do events, sort of comedy type events at the, at the festival. And then more and more doing talks, historical talks that I would I would research. And on the back of COVID, I had to do a talk in 2021. And I said, well, can I do a talk called Death of Kings, where I look at the history of the British monarchy of the last thousand years through the lens of how they died, which was great fun, because as you say, there's, there's a lot of fun deaths. Well, if you can put it that way. It's um, really hard. How do you say it? I, mean, I know. I get told off a well, lot fascinating, smiling about fascinating, it. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating, fascinating. So I was really intrigued that you'd gone several steps better than me and actually written a, a book about it. It's a very, very entertaining book. Mortal Monarchs, 1,000 Years of Royal Deaths. It's a great book to either dip in and out of or follow it through. And inevitably, because you've got a lot of monarchs to fit in, they're quite short chapters. But I find, despite my fascination with disease and, and death, I, I find I can't read more than two or three at once because I start, I start to feel too much about my own mortality and what's going on inside my body because you you do go right into the science and the medicine of, of what's going on inside us. And I think most people try not to think about that. It's essentially a book about all the different ways we can die. Yes. And it's, and it's seen through the eyes, the lens, I suppose, of the, all the monarchs because they're characters that we know and, uh, and, and we can give context and we can you know, talk about why those stories were told as well. Because a lot of them, of course, are embellished or even just 
untrue. But uh, we, you know, it, it makes me think about why. But writing it helped me a lot because I just, honestly, now I just think, well, I just want to have fun with everything because it comes back to this all the time. It comes back to to that. I know my father died whilst I was writing this book, oh, and it was actually it was quite um, it's quite a useful thing to be doing. And I had to say to myself, this this is what happened. People it happens die. to all of us, yeah. I mean, death comes <laughs> calling for kings and commoners alike. And, you know, we kind of bandy these terms around like, oh, he had a stroke or he had a heart attack or, you know, died of some disease. And, and we kind of don't go much beyond that, you know. Oh, he had cancer. And actually to go into it and see what those things really are and how they work and what they do to us, you know, it, it, it makes me feel very fragile. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but it's very useful and we should confront this. But we're all emotional there, talking oh, about dad. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's cool. Um, there are people who are upset by the book because right. they think I'm being too jovial about a very serious subject. And my answer to that is, well, you know, it happens to us all. Yes. And it doesn't just happen to us all eventually. It happens to us all before we go ourselves. It happens uh, to us in, in terms of everyone around us, you know, not everyone around us, hopefully, mm. people around us. You know, I had to deal with my father's death. It, it happens to us all. It comes to us all. And yes. I don't think we talk about death enough. Do I always have to be doing it with a grin and a smile? No, probably not. But, you know. No, I mean, you say it's jovial, but I, I mean, you, you kind of lead us into the stories, often through a sort of light-hearted approach. But then once you get into the actual medical side of it all, you do take that very seriously. That is really ultimately my bread and butter. And uh, and the the... The kings and queens and the history has definitely come later for me. You know, it's, I, I see my a lot of people call me a hist, an historian now, mm. uh, but I see myself as a medic uh, first. Yeah, because you have a and, and I like to talk about this. You have a huge presence on social media. Did that come? Well, presumably that came before writing the books. And someone said, "Look, you're incredibly popular, Susie. You really should." write this down <laughs> the order that it happened in i had the ideas to write the book whilst i was studying um, my masters in history right i also could see that uh social media was going to be the answer in terms of promoting this book mm. and, and you know getting it out there because i didn't have a presence elsewhere uh and so i that was a deliberate act going into tiktok in particular right where yeah i just hit four hundred thousand followers which just blows my mind it's absolutely extraordinary especially to Uh, to someone like me who doesn't really understand how tiktok works i've got to get onto it but but i mean but how did that build up because you presumably you put your first video out three people watch it i mean how does it grow what what were the steps through that because you know, the, the, and and were they were these all historical things you were doing, or was it? There's there's a lot of crossover. There's yeah. a bit of personal stuff as well in terms of um, behind the scenes. Yeah. So writing um, writing ideas, and also, I live I live in this uh, biscuit tin idea of Scotland. You know, this idea <laughs> that Walter Scott brought to George the Fourth and that Victoria and Albert perpetuated. I live right in the heart of it, and so there are bagpipes playing every weekend. There is tartan everywhere. I live next to Balmoral. <laughs> So I made videos about that, and of course you get I get a lot of American followers saying yeah. you know they all want to tell me that they are related to royals of the past, and we all are. So yeah, virtually um, everybody in the world. <laughs> yes, and, and so I grin and I say, "Well done," and I move on. Um, but so they they came first, and then one day I my daughter asked me, "Hey, because really into that, how many followers have you got?" And the answer was one thousand four hundred eighty-five, and I said it as a date. I said fourteen eighty-five, and she said, "Because she's a smart ass." 
that was the Battle of Bosworth. That was when Richard III oh. died. And I said, oh, you're right. That would make a great video. So I turned the camera on and I made a video about that. So I said, look, I've got 1485 followers and this is what happened on that date. And so people saw that and they thought that was fun. So I got more followers. So I had to think fast, think of other other content. What are you going to do? And the, the history stuff was popular. So I started making this wee videos, really short, less than 60 seconds yeah. about uh, the deaths of the kings. And of course, that, that gave me a lot of uh, a lot of scope. And then on TikTok, so you say you don't really know how it works. On TikTok, people will comment on a video. Mm-hmm. And you can take that comment and make a video in reply. So people were making suggestions, asking questions, sending me abuse, but that happens as well. <laughs> and um, Do you do a video every day? I do two or three videos every day, wow. yeah. But that's all part of my Well, it's your marketing. job now, I guess. It's my job now. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, it really is. And um, But, you know, the amazing thing, and I, and I talk about this a lot in this series, is just how hungry for history people are. You know, and I get this from adults, of even adults of my age, saying, I didn't learn this stuff at school. I know these names, and it's amazing now that it all fits together. And, and, and quite a lot of people say, you know, I read quite a lot of historical fiction that will mention King Edward III or something, and now I know who he was and how it all works. So people complain about the internet and TikTok and how it's ruining our minds. But, you know, you, you've got a huge number of followers, and presumably a lot of those are younger people. And, and I think it's absolutely amazing. It's a great starting point, TikTok, you know, that I can't... I can't write essays on there. I can't tell long stories on there, but very, very short snippets. And I I get comments every day from people saying, saw this, went to Google Wikipedia or whatever, saw this and bought that book, saw this and did that, saw this and started a degree in history. (laughs) And I think, (laughs) that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So yes, it is. I have never danced in a bikini on TikTok and (laughs) I'm not planning to ever. I can actually see the age range of my followers. Most of them are between 20 and 35. But there are youngsters and there are. Well, I would say those are youngsters compared to me. (laughs) The response from all the age groups is is phenomenal. And there are a lot. There's some people come on there and go, yeah, I know this. Why are you telling me? Well, (laughs) what can you do? You know, just say, well done, (laughs) move on. But there are others who absolutely delight in it. There are, and and because I cover you know, a thousand years, I don't go mm. much be before ten sixty six. Like you, I can't pronounce half the names. I mm. think that's probably why. I just, uh, uh, but that's just not my just not my thing. Ten sixty six is where it starts, and so a lot of them are very knowledgeable. But a lot of them like to. They, some of them come back and say, "Can we go be more basic? Can we go one hundred one?" And I think, well, that's kind of what I'm trying to do on my podcast. Yeah. But it sounds like for you, TikTok works very well. Sometimes I get told off by TikTok and I'm on a warning that they might take it away, which is bizarre because I think had I been dancing in a bikini, they'd have let me off. And yet that would be wild. But So what? Because your content is about disease and death. Yeah. So death is not a happy thing. Sometimes images don't go down well. I posted right. an image the other day of Galileo's middle finger and um, that got me into trouble. <laughs> uh, sometimes skeletons in the ground get me into trouble so i'm on a warning yeah well don't get cancelled from tiktok because you're doing a fantastic job there and so it worked obviously you did started this as a way to yeah publicize the book get people awareness of the book i mean at what point did you manage to to sort of sell the idea of the book well i had uh, been saying on tiktok that i wanted to write and that i was writing and i had no idea where it was going to go my thought was with you know with most books i thought you write them you try and sell them. Mm. That's what happens with fiction. With non-fiction, it's a bit different. 
in that you can write a proposal. Yes, you do a pitch like a, like a script. And I didn't know that. I just assumed I'd be writing the whole thing. And that is, that's hard. <laughs> but, you know, when you've got no permission or no deadline. Yes. But what happened was I got an, a lovely uh, DM one day from an agent who said, let's talk. And uh, yeah, we, she took me under her wing and we went out and suddenly there was an auction talk and uh, madness. Uh, and then I had to write the thing. So Mortal Monarchs was your first one. Yeah. And you have a second one. Yeah, we're not leaving the human body at all. Vital Organs is the name of the right. book. Um, a History of the World's Most Famous Body Part. So I'm leaving the English and Scottish monarchs behind, mm -hmm. most of them, and going off around the world and finding stories of body parts that have made history. Give us the top three most fun ones to sell your book to the listeners. I always lead with Napoleon's penis. I think that's always just best, a, too, I find. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just the best story. I love that. And um, Which was, I mean, was that preserved in a jar or something? Or, yes, or am I confusing it, that with another body part? It, well, um, Rasputin's is in a jar, right. supposedly. Uh, we'll come back to that. But Napoleon's uh, was just whipped off when he had his autopsy and was squirreled away and now lives in a in a box in a suitcase in New Jersey. Oh, right. It's, yeah. So it's not pickled in a jar. It's very dried up and shriveled. I bet he never expected that. Well, he would probably have been happy about it. But the French have said, the French have said they don't want it. They want nothing. They said, well, we're nothing to do with it. We are not touching the penis. Which is very unlike the French. So... I thought that was quite funny. But yeah, Rasputin's is in a jar, apparently. But it's very, right. very big. And so the Russians are sitting there on the border shouting, our penis is bigger than your penis. And that's <laughs> basically what's happening in the world just now, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we do move away from that part of the body. I look at Emily Wilding Davison's skull and, and how that was um, damaged when she went under the king's horse oh, right, yes. uh, at the Epsom Derby and um, Marie Antoinette's teeth, the way they had to be made to look nice and straight before she could marry the Dauphin. And uh, Louis the Fourteenth's rear end, he had a, um, a fistula in his bum that needed fixing. And uh, yeah, it's a charming book, and uh, <laughs> good fun trying not to get kicked off TikTok talking well, about yeah. all that. It's it, it's challenging, <laughs> but it is good fun. Uh, but uh, you know, but it is fascinating, and these are brilliant ways to to sort of sneak history under the radar slightly. Um, but, yeah, and, and I yeah. also I, I read somewhere that you have been commissioned to write some kids books as well is it yes. like along the same lines of not letting them know they're actually learning history when they think they're just finding out gruesome things that's exactly it it's uh, the first one is called history stinks and it's uh, about <laughs> poo through the ages so we're going we're having a rummage around in Roman toilets and the ancient loos and sewers and um, flushing toilets of the Tudors and, and, and uh, yeah so there's lots of history being sneaked in there hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So just to get back to our mortal monarchs and and looking at how our kings and queens all died, is it fair to say that dysentery must have killed more of them than anything else? I think it's definitely up there, isn't it? And it but it was used, I, I think it's a very broad term. Yeah, dysentery. I mean, I've sort of said, and, I, and I've learnt more from reading your book, I've sort of said that dysentery is a sort of catch-all term for really? any sort of things going wrong in the stomach, whether it's virus or bacteria. I mean, is, is that true or di- is, is, is dysentery a specific thing? And some people describe dysentery as being a bloody diarrhoea, mm. as in has blood in it rather than just yeah, calling it names. diarrhoea. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you're right. It, it certainly is has, it's used as a catch-all. What I find fascinating about dysentery is that it's, it's sometimes it's used as a, oh, he was terrible, so he died of dysentery. And sometimes it's, well, you know... Henry V, for example, we like him. So he died of uh, the soldier's death. So I love the way it's just used in different ways to try and tell us what to think. Yeah, that's such a strong and, and interesting theme in your book, the idea that chroniclers of the time tried to make the way that each king died symbolic of their life. Uh, their deaths were God's way of showing us whether they were good men or, or bad men. And sometimes... The chroniclers found it quite difficult to make the facts fit the myth that they were trying to create, in that not all of the supposedly great kings died pleasant deaths. That was something that came to me, you know, as I wrote it. I mm. didn't go into it knowing that that was going to come up, but um, because I was looking at it through the human body disease death dying lens. Yes. But yes, very quickly I started to question: right, is that? Is that really what happened? And then, of course, it occurred to me that a lot of these stories are written with a morality um, viewpoint. They're often written by either clerics or whatever. And and so there's, there's it's a, it is a strong theme, yeah. So, I mean, even starting with, with, with William I, he wasn't a very nice guy and he had a pretty horrible death and aftermath. Um, but that's an interesting one because presumably at the time the Norman aristocracy were trying to say it was all legitimate, but but had he fallen out of favour enough and was it to sort of, well, let's leave him behind and move on, that that, that that became a kind of symbolic death? I think what we have about William was written quite a long time later, right. 40 or 50 years or so. Audric didn't like what William did in England, <laughs> so he wrote that, uh, about William being a, uh, not a terribly nice bloke. Mm. But, yeah, I don't think it was instant. Certainly these things have, have grown over the years and become more and more. Yeah, yeah. And I found doing this podcast that information about the early monarchs is pretty sketchy. But by the time you get to someone like Henry VIII, there's just so much more information around. Which is ironic because we weren't allowed to write about him. We'll talk about his, his medical matters or his death, imminent death. It wasn't yeah, – you could lose your head for doing that, so – yeah, yeah and and you no, know, there's the stuff in the book that you you wrote about what had possibly happened with his leg wound. Uh, I have to be really careful about that because I came through a orthopedic track and spent a lot of time on orthopedic wards mm. treating with months worth of antibiotics people with um, 
osteomyelitis, mm. and often that would that would end in amputations. So it was it was on my mind, and so I have to be really really careful with posthumous diagnosis. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it's also important that we move away from this idea that disease is some kind of judgment on us and, and that we must put up a moral fight against, say, an evil cancer. And, and I suppose we saw this attitude most vividly in the AIDS epidemic when, when people were saying, this is a judgment from God. And you think, no, this is a nasty disease. It just appeared and, and we've got to now work out how to deal with it, bringing God into it is not helpful. A thousand years on, it doesn't go away. And we still do it. This time last year, when Putin went into Ukraine, a lot of news stories were talking about how he looked really sick. He had obviously been treated for uh, cancer or something because, and, he, and he'd had, he looked like he had steroids and chemotherapy and the like. And this must be the reason for his terrible doings. And, and I thought, hang on a minute, we were saying exactly the same thing a, a thousand years ago. Uh, we still do it. We still look at that sort of thing and we say, well, that equates to um, uh, evil or good. And I suppose we had it all with, with COVID and the way people reacted to that. And there was a strong moral thing of like, well, some people have got COVID because they didn't do the right things. And yes, it, it, you know, we often feel that we've not moved on from the Middle Ages. <laughs> We really don't. And, you know, I love the story. You talk about William the First, the story of what happened to his body after he died. Just absolutely fantastic. But was it true? I, I don't know. I always think there's no smoke without fire, that there's something going on for for these stories to, to then be added to. Yes. For instance, you know, Richard III, I mean, the, the Ricardians and the Richard III Society saying, you know, he did not have scoliosis. He was absolutely fine physically. And then was this absolutely wonderful footage of Philippa um, Langley seeing his body for the first time in the ground with a marked scoliosis mm. uh, was just uh, it was priceless seeing her face because I just think there's no smoke without fire and a lot of these things start somewhere. Although of course we're not trying to go down the route of saying that because someone was deformed in some way they must have been evil. Um, I've, actually, I've written a few James Bond books and trying to make the villain physically memorable, physically distinctive without giving them scars or uh, a claw instead of a hand or a third nipple or a hunchback or something is a challenge. And we're still fighting this idea that ugliness or physical abnormality equates to evil. But chronicles back in history pushed the idea that illness was a physical manifestation of morality in some way. And, and kings were either spared suffering or punished by God. But mostly it's down to their behaviour. And when you know, we talk about King John having dysentery because he was a baddie. And we talk about Henry I was greedy and that's why the surfeit of lampreys. Yes. And Edward, you know, the, Edward like the Fourth, you know, Winston <laughs> Churchill saying, you know, he died because he was too fond of the pleasures of the flesh. You think, well, that's not, is, that a, is that a medical diagnosis? How did you analyse Edward IV's death? He was fairly young, wasn't he? About 44, I think he was. Oh, still, I'm 44, so that is, he was yeah. very young. He was a mere child. <laughs> Just a differ. <laughs> he was a Henry VIII-like, wasn't he? We don't... We, yes. We, he put on a lot of weight. He was... he was tall and handsome and athletic and dynamic when he was young, and then he definitely fell apart. And you can see it even in the portrait... I mean, I yeah, know it's it, not a photograph, but you can see that he's getting paunchy in the face and falling apart a bit. But that doesn't necessarily kill you. I mean, Henry VIII lived no. lived 
at least another 10 years longer than him. And he was in a far worse state. <laughs> well, I I, uh, I know how he feels. And at the same age, <laughs> I'm hoping that doesn't just make me drop down dead. So you mentioned before about this difficulty, and we all try and do it, of sort of diagnosing things 600 years after the event. <laughs> and, and I had Ian Mortimer on. We did one of these special episodes. And we were looking at just life in general in the Middle Ages. And he said he said a really interesting thing is that diseases change. They come and go and some die out. And, and that there were probably many diseases of the Middle Ages that we just don't have anymore. So they're really difficult to say what they might have been or, the, or they've changed so much over the years that it's become something different. So many people, you know, going back to my following online, so many people want me to talk about the sweating sickness. Yes. Well, I was going to get on to that of, of like, what on earth was the sweating sickness? You know, and, and we have no idea. But I mean, there are some, you know, it could have been this or it could have been that. It could mm. have been, you know, a tick-borne disease that's, that ultimately the body has only got a certain number of ways to respond to yeah. uh, an onslaught in that way. So it responds by, you know, sweating or headaches, lethargy, pain in the pain in the joints is common flu like yeah. flu like symptoms uh, are what we use to describe most things that come through that that are of an infectious cause or well, sometimes not even infectious cause but flu like symptoms are really common so they might have come with diseases like the sweating sickness people suffering from the sweating sickness might have been absolutely fine eating their cornflakes in the morning and then be dead before dinner and this disease, it came on very suddenly and it was really splitting headaches and, as I said, lethargy, pain in the joints, arthralgia, and then fuse sweating to the point where they would stink and it would go through their clothes, through bed sheets, really horrendous, heart rate would go up, breathing would go really fast. And then that was it, couldn't take it anymore and then they dropped down dead. So, I mean, does that look like a sort of instance of the body's immune system essentially overwhelming the body? Yes, you know, a little bit septic, I suppose, and sepsis. Sorry, I suppose in this, in the same way that the the immune system would have this real strong response, and the body just just can't handle it all. Mm. And you know, we see that a lot with with the other diseases that we talked about, like salmonella or E. coli or Abby. Mm. But this one, we just don't know, and it could have been an infectious cause from from a tick borne illness or something like that. Mm. Um, there's there's an idea that it might have been a hantavirus. So hantaviruses, it makes sense in terms of the symptoms, but they tend to be spread between rodents and not mm. between humans. And this was going between humans. And there's other thoughts that this was maybe algae related. Weirdly, the sweating sickness, we can't pin it down weirdly because it tended to go for the middle age group. So mm. the, not the young and the old, the way a lot of diseases do, but the young, fit, healthy, rich people. Mm. Which is just really strange. I mean, maybe that's uh, why it became such a big thing, because it, it wasn't indeed. just something that was killing loads of peasants. Suddenly it was the golden generation of the aristocracy is being wiped out. Which does maybe make you wonder if it was killing everyone else as well. It just wasn't Britain. <laughs> yeah, who would bother? First time I've ever thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's lots of different ideas in that respect. Some people have suggested anthrax. It didn't, at least in terms of being talked about, it didn't last that long, did it? It wasn't something that... No. I mean, sort of when sort of roughly was it first talked about and then it, it's not a thing? It was first noted at Bosworth in 1485. Right. It made Henry VII postpone his coronation. Mm -hmm. He decided that that wasn't a good idea with everyone dropping down dead to do that. So that was, that was uh, well, that was just after then, wasn't it? Uh, but then it went on and it came back three or four times in, in clumps and mm. then 
clumps, that's a very good medical term, <laughs> episodes, and then it fizzled out in the 1500s. Mm. Never to be seen again, which is uh, which is good. Well, or maybe it has. Is it just maybe called it something different <laughs> and looked at differently or it mutated into something? Uh, maybe it's COVID. Some people have suggested menopause to me, which is fascinating because uh, it took a lot of young men as well. It took Prince Arthur, didn't it? The heir to the throne. Supposedly. And so without sweating sickness, no King Henry VIII. What a different world we'd be living in. Yes. And and we'd be off to mass in a minute. That's true. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, the other interesting theme through the book is how little attention was paid to the illnesses and deaths of queens. It's like there's a lot of information about the king and then it's the queen where well, she died in X year and how much harder it is to try and find that information. It is really hard. I'd love to learn more about Eleanor of Aquitaine, but mm. really all we have is that the Queen died. <laughs> and that, that, that's frustrating because I want to, I want the nitty-gritty. I want to know what happened. I mean, she at least had had a reasonably long life. Yeah, she did all right, didn't she? She got to her 80s. Yeah. Mm. But more often than not, we know nothing of the, how the Queen's died or what they suffered from, but we know how the kings mourned them. Yes. Eleanor of Castile, she died somewhere near Lincoln up in the north and... Um, up in the north. <laughs> Seems strange to me saying that from Scotland, but she died in near Lincoln and her, her innards were taken out and were buried at Lincoln Cathedral where there's a monument and her body was taken down to London. Edward I was a bit cut up about it and every place that they stopped on the way from Lincoln to London, he erected a, a what are called the Eleanor Crosses now. Mm. So he erected a monument to her and it was all, all about Edward I and how sad he felt at the loss of his wife. But all I have on her was that she died. No idea yeah. of what. It's frustrating. I suppose a lot of them died in childbirth, not just from things going wrong physically, but also from infection. And it's only relatively recently, isn't it, that people have understood about germs. And, and when in the 19th century it was put forward that a lot of women were dying in childbirth because surgeons and doctors weren't keeping clean enough there was a kind of uproar, wasn't there? I mean, actually, your book reminded me of a of a fantastic book, which I'm sure you know by another historian, Lindsay Fitzharris, called The Butchering Art. Indeed. Which is all about surgery and this huge controversy and the pushback from, from, from the male medical profession to the idea of germs and cleanliness being a, a key factor. Because no way did any of the doctors and surgeons want to accept that all these deaths might have been their fault. We still have that trouble with medics, don't we? <laughs> Being one, I can say that out loud. They just don't like to, to take responsibility. Yeah. The most well-known story is the one of Ignaz Semmelweis, who was yes. a, a 19th century Hungarian physician who realised that the doctors were going from the autopsies straight to the women giving birth and that those women had a higher mortality rate than women who were attended by midwives in a separate unit mm. within the same hospital. And he figured it out and he realised that washing hands might be a good idea. And his colleagues didn't like that very much. They didn't like being accused. And he ended up in an asylum, beaten and dying. And it wasn't that long before germ theory became an accepted idea. Mm. But he wasn't the only one. There was a physician in Aberdeen in Scotland who went through the same thing. He was really meticulous about note-taking <laughs> and we could learn a thing or two. But he, he, he wrote everything down. Mm. He'd learnt it in the Navy and the, the guys who were looking at uh, scurvy, etc. In, in the Navy years before, he came to Aberdeen and, and he started writing down, oh, this, this lady in this street died after being attended by this midwife. 
at day 12, uh, this lady attended by the same midwife. And of course, the midwives didn't like that very much. And they took offence. Yeah. And in uh, in America as well, there was another chap uh, who, who went through the same thing. So there were other people like Semmelweis going through the same realisations. But the Tudors understood contagion. I mean, Henry VIII was mad for cleaning everything and, and wanting to remove his himself and his family from any sign of people being sick. He sort of d- disappear mm. off to the country. And he, was, he understood that. Wasn't that, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the idea of the miasma that the Indeed, illness yeah. is spread through this sort of invisible poison gas cloud. Yes, so that rotting organic matter gave, and mm. anything that smelled bad gave off the 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 whatever it was that would cause the disease. And so, cleaning up that stuff and opening windows—it was a good start, wasn't it? I mean, that's what um, <laughs> uh, uh, Florence Nightingale was doing. Yeah, but it, it, they didn't have the idea of germ theory yet. And you know, I always find it extraordinary—the kind of respect that was paid to doctors at the time, who for the most part, didn't really have a clue about anything. And we're, and we're going back to ancient Greek texts and things on how to treat things. And obviously, you know, the law of averages, some people are going to survive. Yeah. Well, you know, I, genuinely, I don't think that really changed much until about the last 20 years. <laughs> you know, doc, doctors, are this patriarchal idea of being, you know, they know best and being told yes. what to do. And, you know, that, that doesn't change hugely. It's starting to. It's starting to become more of a, a, a two-way conversation rather than being told what to do. But mm. I don't know how many times even I've been told, well, you know best. You do what's best. Yes, yes. So while we're on the theme of the miasma, I, I thought there was a really interesting detail in your book about Edward II for, from when he was imprisoned in Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire. And you tell us that one of his jailers claimed that Edward was not only starved while he was there, but they'd also surrounded him with the rotting corpses of animals in the hope that he would catch a disease and die naturally from the miasma seeping out from all this decaying matter. Which would have meant that nobody had to actually bump him off with, with a red-hot poker up his fundament. Yeah, and we've, and we've seen evidence of biological warfare being used in that way. You know, mm. throw the dead, mm. throw the dead corpse over the castle wall during a siege because the the rotting miasma coming off that would would do uh, bad things to the people inside. But it wasn't necessarily understood that it might be the the germs that are flying off when somebody <laughs> explodes when they hit yes, a yes. castle wall. Yes, a rotting body will will splatter. Mm. Yes. Apparently, I'm told. I don't know. (laughs) One of the things that I've been fascinated in, but I haven't managed to get it into any of my episodes, is the idea of the king's evil. Can you you talk us through that, the king's touch and the king's evil? Yes, I can, because I just love the word scrofulous. It is. <laughs> I don't, is it actually a word? Uh, scrofula is, um, is a manifestation of tuberculosis, and it's seen right. in the neck, it's swollen glands in the neck, and it, it lasts quite a long time. It's a chronic thing. Scrofula was known as the king's evil because it was thought to be treated by being touched by the king. And I think it goes back quite a long way. I think it goes back even Edward the Confessor time, but certainly it was taken up by later kings. Mm. Um, I just I love the idea that Charles II went around touching everybody, trying to cure them of the king's evil. And he, he would touch coins and pass the coins on because that was thought that through them, through the coins, they mm. would get the king's touch as well. Um, I'm not entirely convinced. I don't know where it came from because I, I'm not convinced that people who had scrofula were suddenly cured 
Is it something you can recover from? No, I think it's a chronic <laughs> manifestation of tuberculosis and ultimately you're going to succumb to something else or you're going to die the horrible death of consumption. And I have read that over the however many years humans have been on the planet that more people have died from tuberculosis than anything else. And mm. so I don't think that the king would have done a very good job of curing people. I just am surprised that he didn't drop down dead himself. Well, yeah. I mean, they must have, you know hundreds of years of a propaganda machine of saying, well, this works. Whereas, as you say, for the ordinary people and the people who had it, it must be, well, the king touched me, but it doesn't seem to have made any difference at all. Although, you know... Maybe, maybe they just de died before they could tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that the monarch, by having this sort of religious coronation ceremony and being anointed by these holy oils, suddenly becomes God's representative on earth is an extraordinary one but it seemed to be one that everybody wanted to buy into it's a good way to make people follow you isn't it mm. it's, a we, good, you know, it's a good we, trick we like to buy into the fantastical and you know i live as I said before i live in balmoral i live next to balmoral sorry and so a couple of weeks ago the oh you live in balmoral as you can see by this glorious surrounding <laughs> i live out near next to balmoral and the, the king was here a couple of weeks ago for our right. annual gathering and there are a lot of people out there waving flags and, you know. Any with scrofula? Well, uh, uh, he, he didn't touch anyone, which is a bit mm. sad. I was throw throw any coins might... out of his car? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he did shake a few hands. So maybe oh, they, they'll be the ones that are up and doing the hill races and tossing the keyboard next year. There is still that desire, isn't there? To touch the monarch. Mm. Yeah, I touched I'd... his robe. There, there is that desire. However, having said that, I made a video a couple of days ago which talked about... I draw family tree charts. Yes, I know. I've seen a couple of them and I'm very jealous because obviously on a podcast, I can't do mm. the visual things. But, you know, it makes it so much simpler to see it all. I think you the one <laughs> I was really enjoying the one you did about the Matildas. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I missed a few out, which yeah. just frustrated me. I, afterwards, I was told, oh, you missed so-and-so. You missed oh, I said, That's a shame. But I made one a couple of days ago, which looked at Charles III. Yeah. which threw everyone because they said, who's that? <laughs> Charles III and how you can trace his family up through his mother to Victoria and Albert and how you can chase the family up through his father, Philip, to Victoria and Albert and how you can trace again through his mother to Christian the Ninth of Denmark and again through his father to Christian the Ninth of Denmark. But there are thousands of comments on that video and the vast majority of them are very unhappy with the monarchy. So yeah. maybe I just went down that that channel on TikTok where I, I found all the anti-monarchists, but uh, there are as many, I think, out there who don't want to go touching the king as there are who do. Yes, yes. My first iteration of Mortal Monarchs was called How to Kill the King, <laughs> and uh, I changed that very quickly when I came speeding around the corner one day on the other side of Balmoral at Burke Hall where he lives and uh, nearly hit who I thought was the king in the middle of the road walking across the road <laughs> and I just thought imagine they'll, they'll go and they'll they'll raid the house oh, they'll look yeah, at my look, laptop it was a plot all along <laughs> this isn't going to go well so just finally I mean and this is a little bit flippant but um, as you say you like to have a smile while you deliver bad news um, <laughs> do you have a a favourite or most interesting royal death there are so many and I sometimes I I struggle to answer because I'm like, well, there's this and there's that. And then I start at the beginning and I go, William, William, Henry, Stephen. <laughs> there's, there's a death that isn't really... And a lot of people don't know how Mary II died. 
or even that Mary the Second is Mary the Second, you know, because we we talk about William and Mary. Yes, exactly. Mary um, was a was a, a Stuart monarch who who died of smallpox, and yes. we know that Elizabeth the First had smallpox and was scarred, and that's why she wore the makeup, and and that comes up a lot. But Mary, oh, right. Mary died uh, is a horrific death of not just smallpox, but what we call hemorrhagic smallpox. So she started to feel unwell. She had the headache and the joint pains and the flu-like symptoms. And she thought, oh, I'm not very well here. The thing about Mary was that she just was catastrophizing the whole time. So she thought, this is all going to go horribly wrong. She thought she had measles. And oh, she typical up. moaning woman, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. My, and there's nothing wrong with her. Hysterical, yeah, honestly. It's just a woman's thing. <laughs> <laughs> but she did burn diaries and papers and all these things because she thought she was dying, which is a bit of a shame. But she thought she had measles, but then the pustules came. And the pustules of smallpox started to blend together and bleed. And so she just went black with these bleeding pustules all over her body. And it happened in her mucosal linings, which are the linings of the mouth and the gut. And she was spitting blood and she was peeing blood. And uh, her face swelled up. William spent the night next to her in tears. He'd already had smallpox and it was understood that if you'd been there already that you might be okay. So he spent the night beside her uh, and she was, I mean, she would have been unrecognisable. And of course she was a steward. So the stewards liked to do all sorts of crazy things like purging and they would have given her emetics to make her sick. They would have given her purges. They would have uh, given her enemas. They would have blistered her skin to try and pull up blisters to um, to, to pull uh, the humours out. And of course they would have bled her as well. So, she would have been unrecognisable when she died. Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> no, but that is a great pub quiz question. And I think when I've done this series, I will I will do a sort of a, a pub quiz edition of the podcast. Which English monarch died of smallpox? As we said at the start, being a king or a queen does not make you immune to anything. No, we are all susceptible, aren't we? And I, what, what I found fascinating throughout the thousand years is watching how the kings and queens died in a, in manners similar to the, to the rest of the population. So at the beginning, it was mm. trauma and infection, and then it moved on. It was less trauma, and it was more infection. And then we moved on to the chronic lifestyle-related conditions that we're all dying of today. And it tracks, through the book, it tracks in oh. the same way that, that everyone else did over those thousand years. Yes. And then we get to George V, who was, um, I mean, he was dying, but his doctor helped him along the way, didn't he? Do you know, because, because I went through the list... The, from from the year dot, I went through the list when you said, "What's your favourite?" And I got to Mary. I was like, oh, "That's a great one." George the Fifth. What an incredible story! This was less yeah. than a hundred years ago. We're talking a story of regicide. Yes. And whilst whilst people do again get upset with me for saying that he murdered the king, because he was, you know, people are given a cocktail of morphine, well, not cocaine now, but yeah. you, you know, people use morphine to help along those who are in end-of-life care. And yeah. the thing about morphine is that you have to titrate it to how they feel. So you have to give more to some people than others. Mm. And you can give more and more and more and to the point where you no longer need to give any. Uh, so the, the king's physician, Lord Dawson of Penn, he has an interesting idea about euthanasia. Uh, he had written about it. He had stood up in the House of Lords and talked about it. So this wasn't just on a whim. Mm. He saw that the king was dying. He knew that should the king die at a certain time, that the story would go out in the tabloids rather than the broadsheets, and he didn't like that very much. So he decided upon the timing of the king's death, and in order to do that, he filled up a syringe with cocaine and morphine, and he injected it into, into the vein in his neck. And that was the end of the king. And it is 
it's murder. We don't like to think of it in that way because we like to think that he was just helping along a, a, a dying man who was in pain, but ultimately it was regicide. Yes, because there was no consent given. And we are still having those yes. ethical discussions in medicine. Yeah, which is a huge, huge discussion, which you probably wouldn't attempt on TikTok. <laughs> and I, oh, God, no. no. I mean, you don't have time to get in. But, but fascinating, yeah, that idea that in order to get into the into the proper newspapers, he had to die at a certain time. So, well, so it was announced first in the serious newspapers and not the scandal sheets. It's incredible to us now, isn't it? Uh, we were talking about um, the, the, the Queen being unwell and, and, and it was just, it played out in, yeah. in real time in, in all of our phones throughout the whole day of her yeah. death. And then as soon as she dies, the thousands of conspiracy theories come bursting out all just, around yeah, us. Yeah. People like to have a say, don't they? They think, they like to think that they know better. do we all? We all, yes. <laughs> Which is why we make podcasts to say, this is me telling you all about interesting things. Yes, by, by my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect way to end because people should buy your book. In fact, they should buy both your books, Mortal Monarchs and Vital Organs. So that was Dr. Susie Edge, who's been my fascinating guest today. Thank you so much, Susie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Charlie. But I think we'll give the last word to poor old Richard II in Shakespeare's play of the same name. Now, if you'll remember, and this is, of course, dealt with in Susie's book, Richard was eventually starved to death by Henry Bolingbroke, the usurper who got himself crowned as Henry IV. So we'll have a bit more of the speech that I opened with, where he's talking about how the devil plays with us and mocks us, whether we're an ordinary person or, in this case, a king, allowing him a breath, a little scene to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable, and humoured thus comes at the last and with a little pin bores through his castle wall, and farewell king. Cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence. Throw away respect, tradition, form and ceremonious duty. For you have but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel, want, taste, grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.